Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. And my first guest today is John Beckwith, who wrote One Giant Leap for Inhumankind, a piece of mage fiction. Later in the episode, we will be talking to satirist Phil Percato about his Victorian text, Scandal and Fisticuffs. But first, John. So, John, how you doing? Okay. Thanks for having me. Gladly. Anytime people make a mage thing, I'm excited to talk to them about making the mage thing. You have made a mage thing, and it's a big mage thing, and it deserves to be talked about. So what led you to write mage fiction? I think it's the richness of it all. If you get inspired by a couple of brief sentences tucked away in a rule book, you can happily flesh out its details into an entire RPG campaign or a short story. And for this short story, one example would be the in-canon Ibis project of the Void Engineers. What is the Ibis project? And see, in the in the rule books, the uh, the worldwide Ibis project is it monitors the strength of the gauntlet and whether a herd of ghost bison are about to stampede Pierre, South Dakota. I didn't come up with the term Ibis, but as far as I know, I'm the first one who thought of Ibis stations being located coincidentally on telephone poles and tree trunks inside the Umbra making them accessible to technocracy maintenance crews, but invisible to sleepers. Okay, so this is a set of infrastructure that technocracy has set up to, as you said, monitor the gauntlet. Does it just monitor kind of the thickness of the gauntlet, or does it do something else? I- Thankfully, the the way it was originally done in the rule books was really brief. So they didn't fill in too many of the details and that gives me this whole amount of creativity where it's like, oh, okay, I can fill in the details. Where if, you know, there, there's nothing in there that says, you know, what the size of these are, how they're connected, if they're connected, where exactly they're located. For me, it's like looking at an electrical transformer on top of a telephone pole where people drive past it all the time and they look up and go, oh, well, I guess that's important. And uh, meanwhile, it's like, yes, it is. It's saving you from giant tentacle monsters coming through from another dimension. And I like the idea that that infrastructure itself is reinforcing the gauntlet and the consensus, which is helping to keep those creatures out in the first place. Bingo. Yeah. When I was, I guess it was in the mid to early 2000s, there was a company called Ricochet that tried to offer the first kind of high-speed mobile consumer-facing data network. And they used something kind of between Wi-Fi and radio to do that. And once someone pointed out to me their little downward-facing antennae that were on certain poles, I couldn't not see them. And I imagine there's that moment where someone finds out about the Ibis project and is like, oh, oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. So you mentioned these, these few lines that inspired you, and this is a technocracy seemingly story. Are all the fiction pieces in this collection that, or do they span across different factions? For this particular novella, it was, well, ended up being novella length. The majority of what goes on is between the Void Engineers and other parts of the technocracy and a local Garu tribe. And there's one other entity that I don't want to spoil it, but if anybody's already looked through the Void Engineer rule books, they might have a pretty good idea of what they're running into, even if I don't give it its official name. So you mentioned the Garu and someone else. How do you see the world of darkness? Like, what does your world of darkness look like? Is it a dark, grungy reality? Is it the technocracy or secretly the good guys or at least do some good things? How does the the world of darkness in the era that you've chosen kind of play out in your head? Well, for the Umbra itself, in which a lot of this book is set, I imagine the tone and visuals of the 1951 black and white science fiction film classics, The Thing from Another World or The Day the Earth Stood Still. My headcanon features an umbra which is similarly muted in color. My umbra is always foggy, day or night, and it's sparsely populated. Bright color is sparse there. Paved roads with road signs are still reliable for technologically oriented mages. You might drive along in the umbra and see a spectral prehistoric megathrope eating leaves off trees, and once in a while a silent strider Garu in wolf form might race past you on the other lane. To me, the pattern spiders associated with civilization might not be visibly present, but their webs holding the infrastructure together 
would appear as uh, solid black chains in the umbra. Pattern webs are strung from building to building like Christmas lights with all the bulbs removed for your safety. My headcanon of technocracy facilities appears a cross between live stage theater sets and the mining platforms of Deep Rock Galactic. It's an unusual video game that came out a while back. To, uh, my friends and I began playing, and it's uh, basically your, mine, your space dwarves who do mining on uh, asteroids, and it's a hoot to play, and the art style of it is just playful enough and just you know kind of has that vaguely cartoon feel that you can actually relax after a day of work as opposed to oh my gosh i gotta get on with the squad and your depiction of the umbra actually matches up with the description we get in a lot of cases like one of the things i find interesting is in the mage canon it is frequently listed as how kind of empty the penumbra is and you mentioned the the pattern spider web that which is kind of holding everything together one of the first things i remember doing once the first generative art tools came out was trying to use that to imagine the umbra because we've done any number of umbra episodes and i wanted something like cityscape covered in cobwebs or cityscape covered in giant spiders or something like that and i never was able to find something you mentioned the silent striders why them as kind of the other type of night folk that are that are in the story i basically just thought up a guru pack from scratch that would have fulfill certain roles within moving the plot along in the story and the majority of them are octana if you have an interdimensional you know entity pursuing you you, you might want to go talk to the folks who are experts at being able to you know contain bane spirits for ten thousand years the silent striders i don't go too deeply into either the werewolves or the technocracy in terms of their interpolitics. There's some of it going on, but I tried to have a lot of it with the feel of what would this be like if there were a bunch of people playing around a table? At a certain point, they're going to, you know, reach over for the chips instead of going, you know, your great grandfather dissed my blah, blah, blah. I challenge you to a clave duel. It's like, really, Jerry? It's, you know, we, we kind of had a whole thing going on tonight. Instead, you decide to ruin it with a clave duel. The Silent Striders are just one of the tribes I have going on. I pictured it or put it together as a, as a pack of individuals, mostly with uh, roles for the store, with roles that, you know, to move the uh, plot along. But the more it's, it was moving along, the more I realized, oh my gosh, this does sound like I was actually interviewing a bunch of folks who were playing this around a table and I was just borrowing their characters. Yeah, and that is one of the difficulties with fiction. Is this set in the world or is this like a fictionalization of what would happen at a table? And it's interesting to see both. Sometimes I'll read a fiction piece or a short excerpt and I'll be like, oh, okay, I see. I can figure out very specifically what spheres were used when this person was talking. And it sounds like you went that direction. And and just for listeners, the Ukena are a one of the tribes in Werewolf the Apocalypse. They are one of the original tribes that settled North America. They are also known as Older Brother, and kind of their specialty is keeping and subduing Bane spirits, big bad things. Frequently, they are depicted as being a little bit weird, and I always like the Uktena because Older Brother seems to be one of the groups of werewolves where a mage who has seemingly seen everything would look at these people and still go, that's a little weird. You're a little creepy. I've been literally to the underworld. That's still creepy. It is interesting because I would love to see a game or a world where they are kind of the admitted experts, that they are the people that you call in when something really bad happens, but no one really, really wants to do that. Well, well put, yeah. The other one are this, that you mentioned are the Silent Striders, which is a group I think who is home originally was Egypt. There was some sort of issue and they were banished and now they are very peripatetic. They tend to move around and the world is frequently unsafe for Garou or werewolves, as it were, and they tend to travel the Umbra, which informally kind of makes makes them experts in just kind of the whole transit and umbra in general, as opposed to being a super expert in one particular space. For the story, when is it set roughly? My answer may elicit booing and hissing from some listeners, but for my plot to be engaging and cohesive, I needed it to occur fewer than 10 years after July 1999. And for my characters and their decisions to make sense, I needed that controversial dimensional anomaly to still exist during the time of the story. Uh, I'd love to say why I found 
this event and this time period interesting, but I might be ruining a few a few plot points. I can hint that if folks like the Void Engineers rulebook, they'll probably like what's going on throughout my book too. The first edition, the, the first one or the second one? Purple cover and the one that came out in the 2000s. Convention book Void Engineers, I think, is probably one of the best written books of the Mage line because it's like, oh, by the way, within these pages, we're going to perfectly outline a total way of viewing the cosmos that is largely internally consistent, but I still consider Tegmark lensing to be weird. So we have an idea of the setting. We have an idea of kind of the other world locations. Does this take place in a particular space in Meat Space? And if so, what is special about that place? I'd say that oddly enough, I deliberately tried to write it. I go again, I keep thinking of 1950s black and white science fiction where it was warnings against communism and look to the skies. And partly I say that because a lot of these settings could be, I mean, I, I leave it deliberately very, very vague. It could be happening upper New York. It could be happening in British Columbia. It could be happening in South Dakota. It's as long as there's a place where you have a road, you have towns around, but it's not as if they have to, you know, worry about, oh my gosh, where am I going to get my, where am I going to get my donut, my coffee this morning? Like, don't worry about it. We have monsters chasing after us. You can live. Yeah, that kind of uh, every place setting, which was probably partially an outgrowth of Hollywood only having like five sets. But yes, as a reader, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty useful because, oh, this is like this part of my area. This is like this area west of the Alleghenies, or this is like northern New York, or this is like uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, or something like that. Or yes. this is like Minot, North Dakota, or something like that. Yes, exactly. And it, it is also interesting because it points out like of the game lines, Mage is the one almost least concerned with place. You don't have the difficulty of moving around a vampire. You don't have the tie to a particular location, maybe of most werewolf games. You don't have the necessity of having fetters and a haunt and wraith and so on. So Mage kind of works well with that generic placelessness. It doesn't, it doesn't lose anything in that process. Agreed. So we've talked about the place. We've talked about kind of the people. What roughly happens in the story? If this is the story of a technocracy technician named Giggler. She constructs a way to bring back a colleague who is stuck in another dimension, but something else wants to come back with them. A local werewolf pack doesn't want them coming back at all. As far as taglines for my main characters would go, and these are the sort of things that I would tape up next to my computer to occasionally remind myself how to stay on track of what's going on with certain, uh, certain characters would be, stay and your pack will exile you for showing compassion to your enemies. Leave, and an innocent man will die at the hands of your family. Stay, and cosmic rays will turn you into a monster. Leave, and lead otherworldly horrors back to Earth. Stay, and be arrested and re-educated by those who made you who you are. Leave, and your family and colleagues will be told you are a traitor. Stay, and remain alone until the suns turn cold. Leave, and return to a world which no longer recalls your service. And if that's not evocative, I really don't know what is. Like frequently mage talk, people talk about mage as a power fantasy. And to me, the key to making a power fantasy human beyond kind of the power part is having those terrible choices. Who are the key characters? What are they? You had mentioned the, the technician, the technocrats, and the Garu. What's kind of a thumbnail port portrait of the, the character we follow or characters? Using character sheets and dots sometimes gets kind of tricky because then you know people get a little bit or at least as uh, writing it it gets a little bit too unnecessarily it messes it kind of self-sabotages but i found that just the upper part of those character sheets where it asks about essence spheres nature demeanor questing throw in like you know three adjectives to describe a person those ended up just for me to have those written out really helped me to go okay it's this is a nice anchor to remind me okay remember this person is supposed to be like this at the same time though i was pleasantly surprised by how many of these characters even though they're completely fictional people you start writing them one way and due to the you know environment of the events in the story you realize after a while no i don't think that's what their demeanor really is or no i don't think that's what their nature actually is so i ended up 
in the book itself at the uh, at the end, basically putting on not full character sheets with you know skills and dots, but I'll, I'll give you sort of the four big examples are Giggler, she's a void engineer in her 30s, Essence, questing, nature, perfectionist, demeanor, benefactor. Giggler is grown up, Gree, and galaxy. Chris Two Rivers, child of Gaia Philodox in his mid-60s. Nature, caregiver, demeanor, guru. Chris Two Rivers is cooperative, civic, and calming. Al One, void engineer technician in his early 60s, but is later affected by void adaptation. Essence, pattern, nature, judge. Demeanor, traditionalist, obsolete, old, and organized. Saltfur, Uctena Theurge, does not know the year he was born, likely in his 80s. Can no longer resume Hamid form without passing away from infirmity. Nature, fanatic, demeanor, loner. Salt fur is sour, secretive, spiritual. I also like the fact that you're, one, you use the three adjective descriptor, which is what Invisible Sun uses, take a drink. And also the fact that, like, it's not a story of young hotshots as described. I feel like as the average age of a mage fan grows older, the questions the game naturally asks about meaning and who we are shift from who will I become to what have I been and how do I want to spend my time? So, like, hearing a character that is in their 60s and in their 80s and the question of what does obsolescence mean i don't know resonates with me oddly enough while this is a fiction book involving mages and werewolves the more i wrote the more i was trying to give it a you know a a theme that would be deeper and more universal than merely let's levitate a police car and call it coincidental magic i so i ended up writing a book about growing old and about how loyalty often ends up being a double-edged sword when your own team doesn't resemble itself anymore. This story's repeating theme is all about how individuals, societies, and in terms of the guru, even entire species, react when they're confronted with their own obsolescence. This became a deliberate parallel between how different editions of mages' rulebooks differ with each other, and for how every mage fan's quest for the authoritative best edition might be an unsatisfying wild goose chase for us. I am certainly of that opinion. The more you read into an edition, the less I feel it makes sense to talk about an edition as a unified whole. I would break 1E into two editions. I would break second edition probably into two editions and revised at least into three. I'd also argue that M20 is like two and a half editions. And it also kind of reminds me of some of the themes of like the Forever War by Joe Haldeman kind of comes to mind. Like, what is it like when we have been fighting a war with directives given to us at one time that are now being enforced and perpetuated by a completely different group of people than those who kind of picked it at the first time? Brick in the Wall feels very different now than when it initially came out as a response to World War II. (laughs) So to just think that the same themes and settings just keep their meaning and move forward is certainly something I'm I'm at least skeptical of. Another thing you include is character art. Uh, Who did that? 99% of it was me. Nice. But I do have one shout out. Everybody will know this person's art. They might recognize his name. Dan Smith. If you've ever seen in, uh, especially in Werewolf and a lot of GURPS books and several of the technocracy books in the 1990s, there were a lot of black and white illustrations by an artist named Dan Smith. And I was able to contact him and hopefully I didn't sound like too much of a too much of a fanboy <laughs> a couple years uh, back in 2018 and I you know got I paid for a commission from him for one of my one of the characters that appears from here who I've never actually played it was just a character that I had had in my mind and eventually used in stories and the amazing thing was, and I, I, I need to say that just as kind of a, you know, if he was here, he might sound weird giving himself props, but I was, uh, let's just say he does a very good job at being able to really hard to see elements in a person's character description, and it makes the translation and he's able to draw it, because this is one of those pictures that's like, okay, I could not have improved upon this. This is what this character looks like. And I was able to uh, put this this uh, illustration in the book. And I'm pretty sure when people see it, they're going to be like, wait a minute. That's one of Smith's drawings. Again, a lot of people recognize his artwork. And it uh, partly I mentioned him because his artwork back then, especially his artwork in the technocracy books, it changed my art style. 
And it got me more interested in reading the technocracy, which then 20 years later ended up with me creating this. So it's one of those moments of, yeah, I think I better give him some credit for this. But the vast majority of the illustrations in there were uh, by me. And ironically, I drew them before I had even started writing the story. When you get the title, links to the DeviantArt original kind of uh, character sheet, character uh, pose sheet are there. And it was lovely to see those as well. Uh, It's always interesting when creators are able to do just more than one aspect of what they do. And similarly, I don't know how much of my enjoyment of the Euthanatoy is born of Alex Shakeman's art, which I find uh, visceral and and influential to, to this day, certainly. So overall, this is about 40,000 words. It's a little bit, it's about the size of a first edition tradition book in terms of word count, because sometimes you have a different form factor. And what would you say to anyone who's interested possibly in writing their own mage fiction? I have to admit when I started it, it was done as a le- basically just a labor of love and a challenge uh, just to myself. Of, I mean, I, I'm not going to win a Hugo probably within my lifetime. I, I understand that. I have a day job. You know, I, I'm not going to starve to death when I'm 80. But at the same time, it, I've asked myself that question more often than you might imagine. But I'd say for me, it was, I have to admit, the nice thing about Storyteller's Vault is how easy they made it in terms of the legality of it. Because, I mean, it, it, not not to sound bad, but it's, it's like if somebody out of the blue just calls a company like Paradox Interactive and says, hey, have I got a book for you? Yeah, right. Click. <laughs> you often have that feeling of like, well, where's this going to go then? It's just going to sit in my computer the rest of my life. But with uh, Storyteller's Vault, I have to admit, when I looked through their rules, it was like, wait a minute, I can do this without it creating really ob- obnoxious constraints upon the story itself. I think it helped ahead of time that I, I'd already decided I wasn't going to have poor Orthos, you know, suddenly show up in a chapter and have him suddenly decide that he likes banana sundaes or something. It's, I wasn't going to, you know, steal what was already there. I just wanted to, yeah, labor of love off of a setting and out of brief secrets mentioned in different rule books that kind of, you know, inspire a person to make them go, ooh, what would happen if this got fleshed out? To me, the thing that I take away from that is it's doable. You found it to be fulfilling. And it's maybe not as technically challenging as people think. As you mentioned, the license is out there. You can do it. You just have to post it in the Storyteller Vault. The Storyteller Vault user interface isn't particularly hard. You also mentioned earlier that you have the idea of you can make a story that sounds like it's something that came out of a game table, or you can have a story where you just take the setting elements and run with it. Both of those are fine. Some people's stories are a fictionalization of what happened at a table. In fact, Red Moon Roleplaying has made their entire career off of doing that, of role-playing through action occurring at a table and then just cutting out the systems bits, which I find (laughs) absolutely infuriating because I want the systems bits. I know that that (laughs) is something that is varied over time where I almost want to do the opposite where we're like, we're doing an actual play uh, play of mage. We're just going to cut to the systems bits or something like that. And as you mentioned, it's something that you can do. I think the other key thing that you mentioned earlier was you initially had this goal and then it kind of grew. Resisting scope creep, I think is one of the hardest things to do when self-publishing or doing something for the Storyteller Vault. So certainly I, I understand that. Do you have a next thing planned that you would like to do? The short yet accurate answer is that I really need to wait and see what my readers like or dislike about what I already wrote. If I get useful comments, which are with which if they're within reach of my skills, it would definitely motivate me to write another mage or werewolf or vampire book. In particular, I have to admit, I'm kind of keen on the idea of just the challenge of writing a short story where old clan Samishi and new clan Samishi contact some progenitors and void engineers to devise lock-solid scientific tests which will settle once and for all whether or not vicissitude is a vampire <laughs> discipline or a disease or a soul-eating interdimensional parasite. And within vampire, that's uh, it's one of those controversial things similar to how Mage has the uh, dimensional anomaly where some people have a fit and other people have a fit for the other reason. It's fascinated me in the vampire books how basically you have two different branches of the same clan, which at first reading through one of their rule books, you get the impression that, oh, yes, yes, vicissitude is evil. And then 
then then the revision comes out you start thinking or that could have just been a smear campaign by their rivals yeah like there's no man there was no magic involved for me that's long fascinating me about all the uh, world of darkness books it's not so much even any one book i'm thinking of the uh, you know the parable with the blind man feeling around the elephant and each one comes up with uh, a different description for me i've always been fascinated how so many of world of darkness books they like each one will have it's not that they're lying to the reader but they're blind to their own to something that they themselves can't see and it's not until you you read, you know, one of the other books, maybe that comes out just a couple of years later, maybe it comes out by uh, just by one of their rivals. And suddenly you realize, oh, what I thought was going on is not what's going on. And then you wait for another edition to come out and then they say, or was it? Maybe they were originally correct to begin with. And for me, instead of that being annoying, it's actually really freeing for creativity because, well, you don't really have to worry about keeping too close to canon if the canon occasionally changes. For me, oddly enough, I, I've, I've really enjoyed using the you know different editions to get ideas from, you know, because I don't actually you know, do dice rolls behind the scenes, I can still take parts out of different rules about how to somebody looking over various scenes in my book will might have the impression just like, yeah, yeah, I think that could actually happen in a game. And they might actually end up being able to go to different tables in different books and say, yep, yep, I'll bet here's I'll bet here's where he got it. This is what this person was trying to do. And this is why they barely succeeded. And this is why they have paradox backlash. And instead of being constricting, it was coloring between the coloring within the lines was actually pretty freeing. It's one of those things where it's like, yes, the world of darkness is an intricate tapestry. Many of the strings are broken, some of them are weirdly knotted together, and the closer you stare at it, the more obvious it is that it's just a bunch of people with cool ideas trying to make everything work. Yep. <laughs> I very much appreciate that. As someone who's like, canon is a thing, but it's weird. <laughs> One thing, and this is, uh, I, I'm gonna, I saved this for the very end of the interview so it didn't look like I was uh, you know, trying to brown nose. But I got to say, one of the things that you have done very well in so many of your podcasts is you have a real talent to be able to look at somebody else's, you know, three paragraphs of ideas, and then you will instantly come up with an analogy for it that is just dead on. And it is, a, it's a, it's fun to listen to just because of how it's like having a prize pupil in the back of the college classroom who knows the answers as well as the, as the professor and everybody in the class just occasionally turns around and goes, is that person even in our class? <laughs> so I, Thank you. John, you were kind. I'm glad that I, I do something useful for the listeners because, again, I play the game. I'm just trying to make sense of it, too. I've certainly found it fun and enriching. And if I can pass on the good ideas of other people in a form that is more digestible, I, I think the person who can distill and edit is also useful in it. And that's something I try and do. John, thank you so much for writing this and for joining us today. We'll include a link to this in the show notes. If people are interested in giving you feedback or getting in contact with you, is there a best way to do that? I would say on the Mage of the Podcast Discord channel, where I could be found as uh, John Beckwith. If I'm online, I sometimes go by the nickname of Puppet Cancer, which is uh, both a pop culture reference to an episode of Angel titled Smile Time and a personal reference because I uh, went through six months of chemotherapy back when I was age 29. A heck of a second act. John, thanks so much for joining. Oh, thank you. Today, we are talking to community content creators. creators, creators, creators. <laughs> These are the people that make sure that we have mage in between mage. And when I think of community content, I generally don't think of Satoros because Satoros is actually the author for the official mage content. But today, we are talking to Satoros as a creator of community content who has done a Storyteller Vault supplement again. Satoros, how are you doing? This one makes my third Storyteller's Vault book. I also did Mage Made Easy and Fallen Companions, and I've just released this morning uh, Scandals and Fisticuffs, Victorian Adornments for Mage 20th Anniversary Edition. Before I ask you what it is, let me ask, why is it? You have a lot of things you could write. Why did you write this? This one is made up of pieces that I either wrote for Victorian Mage and then cut because my word counts on Victorian Mage were limited, uh, or I had wanted to write for Victorian Mage and didn't bother because of word counts were limited and I realized it wouldn't fit in. 
I basically sat on that for uh, the better part of four years until Victorian Mage came out. And then I was like, okay, get that stuff and put it out there. What did you like, if anything, about the Victorian setting, besides the fact that it means that Mage now has more historical settings than any World of Darkness line, which I think is really the important part? Vampire has uh, Dark Ages and uh, Victorian. But it doesn't have Sorcerer's Crusade. That's true. That's true. With I'd forgotten. That's right. Mage one. does have Mage does have Dark Ages. I keep forgetting about Mage Dark Ages because Bill did that one, and I wasn't uh, dealing with the wolf at that time. It's a good book. I just keep forgetting about it because interesting little artifact. If you stare at it hard enough, you can <laughs> see a bunch of the precursors of Awakening in it. Mm -hmm. How do we simplify certain aspects of the magic system? How do we build dice pools and make them more interesting? As Bill has said, the, he wanted to make Awakening different, distinctly different from uh, from Ascension. So he made it much more of a, a much more focused on the, the theosophical approach to Western modern Western magic than the the sort of open-ended chaos magic approach of, uh, of Ascension. I think this, since this is like the first Victorian supplement out of the gate, this increases the amount of Victorian material out in the world by like 15%. Nice on that one. What are the sections in the book? So the sections in the book are one dealing with social combat, which of course with a Victorian setting is a big part of the uh, the setting, especially when you're dealing with the British, French, or German, at that point Prussian really, aristocracy, but also you know can apply in uh, certain settings in a US or India setting as well. The martial arts section, which the Victorian era sees the either... Uh, creation of or the popularization of martial arts forms that have become incredibly influential in the 20th century, but which were really new things to people in the, the Eurocentric sphere in the 1800s. Uh, the whole idea of the, the Boxer Rebellion, which there's a sidebar about the Boxer Rebellion in Scandals and Fisticuffs, they named it the Boxer Rebellion because people hadn't seen people in the in the in Europe were not familiar with unarmed fighting styles quite as elaborate as the ones used by the Shaolin and by other uh, Chinese resistors of the European occupation. Between that and their uh, discovery of uh, Aikido, Jiu-Jitsu, and Karate in, when Japan opened up to, to Europeans again in the 1800s and Americans, of course, in, in the 1800s, that sparked a fascination in Europe with which, as I point out in, in Scandals and Fisticuffs, the idea of the ancient Chinese secret, which were these, to a degree, the, these Asian fighting arts, which weren't, you know, a big secret in Asia, but were, you know, took the Europeans by surprise and led to the, the creation of Bartitstu, which is one of the martial arts, European martial arts, innovated in the 1800s. And there's an entry about that as well. Related to that, there's also, like, I've got an entry about how the Marquis of Queensbury changed European or specifically British boxing, you know, from the bare knuckles brawler style of earlier eras into the modern form of boxing that we know now came about again in the 1800s, but mostly by way of the, uh, the Marquis of Queensbury actually creating more rules and, and the idea of boxing gloves and so forth. And you've also got Lacan, rather, K.A. Kandaar. I'm not looking at the entry off the top of my head. So, and I also speak horrible French. <laughs> so, but the French cane stick fight, uh, cane, you know, stick fighting and Savat de Roux, which uh, again, another form largely innovated in the, in the 1800s, also got a, an extensive entry about Kung Fu, which of course is you know, a collection of much, much earlier styles, but again, was, was something that was new to Europeans in that era, uh, how Kung Fu ends up not only influencing European and American fighting styles, but also becomes especially prominent to European colonizers because they're getting their asses kicked by it. How Kung Fu being much, much more familiar in Chinese lore and in Asian lore, but specifically in Chinese lore, is in the Asian you know, reality zones is unless you're doing something like, you know, flying through the trees in, in on fire or something, it's a elegant magic. And so you can do these amazing things because that's still very much part of the lore. The Chinese immigrants are also bringing that over into the Americas by way of the Chinese diaspora into North America, again, during the 1800s. 
the art you have for the uh, Conda to Combat or Conda to Arm is lovely. I very much <laughs> want those as bookends. I want two Frenchmen <laughs> with a stick upright holding my text in place as is only appropriate. You do call out that Gunfu probably isn't yeah. going to be considered elegant, so that made me a little bit sad, but I'm glad you did formally recognize the 10th sphere of gun with yeah, the text. Yeah, so. yeah gun, gun slinging was definitely, that had to go in there. I've thought about putting in an in entry for Aikido or Karate also, but I was just at that point, the, the book was starting to push the upper limits of what I could get out in between my various different other projects. I, I don't even want to attempt mangling the Cree on this one, but I did write an entry for the indigenous American fighting style, which now has a modern Cree name, which as I say in the, uh, in the entry did not have that name during the 1800s, but the, the guy who innovated that style in the 20th century was working with 17th, 18th, 19th century fighting styles when he did it and that that particular fighting style you can see it being used in the films brotherhood of the wolf and last of the mohicans both of which pre the victorian era but that it's perfectly reasonable to have either an indigenous american character using those arts or having european characters having those those arts used against them even though it's not going by the cree name that, that the art has been gathered together under in the 20th century and there's also because i wanted to have something in there the naganatsu which is the japanese art of using either the naganata or other or, or other pole arms or staffs to sweep the legs out of out from under opponents which although it was used by all genders was specifically specialized in by female samurai, and that's uh, gone into in the entry as well. Okichita Indigenous Combat Arts Center in Toronto is indicating that it is acceptable to pronounce it Okichita. So I think you're talking about you. the <laughs> plain yes. screen yes. <laughs> uh, that refers to it. So just in case it's wrong, yes. I'm the one doing it wrong and you're fine. So uh, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. is an interesting uh, little entry. And when you Google it, it is still actively in use and you can sign your kid up for it today. And the Okichita Indigenous Martial Arts Collective has a pretty neat logo of a person I would not want to have come at me with axe or fist. So <laughs> that's that's important. So we got, we, got, we got the range on that one. So you made mention of social combat arts. What does that look like? Is that something where you provide a, a system for it or is it just guidelines or how class works? What, what does social combat mean in this case? It's mostly guidelines with reference to a bunch of period or just or period book ending uh, media simply because there's if you wanted to get into the ins and outs, so to speak, of Victorian era social combat, it depends, the, the specifics depend tremendously on which class versus which class in which city at which year. There's a lot of range there. I mostly just mention that it is used, how it is used, how that usage is reflected in the, the established mage rules, and how a kind of a rough rundown of the social classes of the era. And, you know, mentioning as well that in certain regions, you also have the, uh, you know, enslaved classes and that there are class distinctions within enslaved populations as well. Again, it's one of those things where you could write a whole book about it. I just wrote a few thousand words on it in the entry and then just you know, refer people to other media sources for if you want the specifics, here's examples of how it plays out. Uh, here are some books talking about, you know, the, the various class distinctions and so forth. But it's mostly guidelines saying this is going to be important. Here's how this gets played out in terms of the rules and the systems as they exist. And here's how you can integrate magic into that. And here's how that can impact both how the magic can impact the, the social combat and how being known as someone who uses those weird arcane things could impact you. I mentioned in there that although secret societies, and we go get more into that, how membership in arcane fellowships is a fairly common thing in certain classes during that time period, how it's an open secret 
but it's an open secret that can be really embarrassing if the press gets hold of it. So you make mention of kind of social combat. Hopefully I'm not stealing the thunder out of it, but kind of one of the things that you mentioned that brings it all together is the cornerstone of it is raising yourself up while making others fall. Yeah. And with that mm-hmm. line, every hermetic had to wipe a, like a little tear from <laughs> and be like, they were being recognized. I feel so seen right now. <laughs> So that's kind of the first two big sections of the book. Combat of all sorts, the way magic interfaces with it, some recommendations on merits and flaws, a pretty extensive inspirational media list. The next section we have going through is occult celebrities. This is a a list of period-appropriate people that you can include in your game. Some are kind of early, some are kind of late. Who are two or three that you you think... We have Aleister Crowley, we have Madame Blavatsky. Like, these are names that very quickly bubble to the surface. What are some that maybe most mage fans wouldn't think of first, but could probably fit nicely in a game? Well, Crazy Horse. Give us a little information, if you wouldn't mind. Crazy Horse was named for, and I also, I, I don't want to distort the Lakota, by, uh, by, but I do go into his given names. Crazy Horse's name is inspired by one of his visions, which was a rider on a horse that wavered like it was smoke or light, contrary to the anglicized conception of of crazy horse that wasn't referring to a horse that was crazy or crazy horse himself being crazy. It was referring to the vision where his horse was wavering. It was solid yet wavering like lit smoke. Crazy horse was very much a warrior, but that he was a spirit warrior. He saw himself in, in his vision as someone who as long as he behaved honorably and as long as he you know lived like a humble person rather than an egotist that he would not be harmed in battle and that he saw many battles he fought in many battles and was never injured in the battles he was injured when he ran off with a guy's wife the guy shot him in the face and he was injured after he had surrendered or he was you know historically murdered by the uh, by the cavalry very much on a lot of levels like a mage character in that he was able to because of the way he approached the word the world in a spiritual fashion and very much guided by his visions that he was able to do things a normal mortal person should not have been able to do in combat and that his vision although he died before the ghost dance period that his visions of if you live a certain way the bullets can't hurt you helped inspire the ghost dance movement even though historically he was dead by that point and something about those entries and something about victorian mage in general as well as sorcerer's crusade one of the things i love about mage in his in setting mage in historical periods is that the history is not set mage is all about changing the world and when you're playing sorcerer's crusade or dark ages mage or victorian mage you can change the course of history is that the future is not set. And so these people's historical lives are not set. Those entries are written in in present tense. And I say, you know, here's historically when they lived and died. Here's how they historically lived and died. But those things might work differently in your game. Things may go differently. And that was one of the things actually that I was struck by when I was writing those entries is just how shitty those people, the majority of the people that I wrote about had really awful lives. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write those entries was because I wanted to give them better endings than than what they had. Uh, Georges Méliès, he created special effects. He created uh, the genres of horror and fantasy and science fiction movies. And then he got utterly destroyed by Thomas Edison and ended up, you know, just storming away from the whole thing and, you know, dying broke. Thomas Edison, who I also have, that's someone else you wouldn't normally think of in a mage book, but Thomas Edison was very much a mage to the point where a technomancer, a technocrat, of course, but to where some of the inventions that he uh, that he either created or he uh, you know took credit for from other people were inspired by the spiritualism movement. By He created a, a thing to try and talk to ghosts when he created the recording technology, which was ironic because he was almost completely deaf. But when he created recording technology, he said, we can, now we can listen to the voices of the dead. Yet at the same time, he was a humanitarian as a person, but he was a ruthless businessman who fucked people over on a historical level. He, of course, he and Tesla, Tesla's got an entry too. Tesla being someone else who really deserved better from history than he got. But almost everybody I wrote about wound up miserable, which is sad. George Melier, as you mentioned, probably best known for A Trip to the Moon as, as a working piece. 
I always have a secret hope whenever I have a historical figure in Mage that we put them in like a radically strange group <laughs> where we're like no, noted cultist Thomas Edison or something mm-hmm. like that or like third generation chorister Nikola Tesla. But that <laughs> that is just my fondness for, for strange bread fellows, as it were. Those are some of the people. Do you posit that these are figures that are mages like uh, canonically in a number of the the splat books it says hey in the world of darkness this person was a mage and in other cases there's just like kind of this oh, this person did a lot of major stuff what's going on there do you <laughs> are, are these merely characters to include or do you suggest that there is a secret history where they are involved in the ascension conflict directly well i i have a sidebar in the book that says, you know, it, the, the title of the sidebar is What Tradition is Alistair Crowley? That's got a question mark on it because I want to leave that ultimately up to, and I say this in the book, I want to leave it ultimately up to the storyteller whether or not, you know, Crowley is awakened or just a really charismatic con man. Canonically, other books have said Isadora Duncan is a member of the, uh, the ecstatic tradition that Crowley probably joins quite a few of them and pisses everybody off in every one of them that austin osman spare is probably an ecstatic though he might also be a hollow one and in that sidebar i take all of the figures that i mention in the book and i say well they would be whether or not they were mages whether or not they are mages in your chronicle whether or not they belong to this group or that group is up to you but these are groups that they would be associated with, whether or not they actually belong to those groups. These are groups that they would be associated with if they had. Ada Lovelace, who also has an entry in there, is canonically noted as influencing the difference engineers. According to Victorian Mage and the entry that I did not write, it says that she is a sleeper. I think she could have been awakened. Once again, I leave that open to the individual storyteller and the individual players. I think it's much more fun if people decide for themselves rather than if we tell them such and such historical figure was, you know, from X group or an awakened mage of X group. I think your greatest choice is indicating that Nikola Tesla may have been a member of the invisible X checker. I am here for that. (laughs) Thank you. So continuing through, we have about a third of the book being those occult personalities and then kind of rounding out the text, you have templates that you you can drop in one of the recurring themes in kind of your your work or the ones that you heavily pilot seems to be having those character templates less i'm going to give you 30 mages here's the long list of everyone's of the person who embraced everyone and their lineage back to Cain, and more here are different types of people is that just a thing you are drawn to do you feel that mage benefits from that more than just having canonical characters with with stat sheets why so many? Yeah. Part of the why so many is just because it gives people a lot of toys to play with. If you were going to assign a particular historical figure a template, it would be like, okay, Isidore Duncan when in her career? You know, uh, Alistair Crowley at which point of his of his career? Are we talking about young Alistair? Are we talking about the fat, creepy old toad toward the end of his career? Which <laughs> Crowley are you talking about when you, when you lay out a template? So I, I prefer to leave those things stats and so forth to individual storytellers. I mean, that's what I do when I'm running games. I don't use a set template for a particular, or I don't use it rather a set, a set stat block for a particular character. I, I choose something that seems about right, and then I adjust it to what I would use. And that's what I do with the templates. And the templates are also for general character types. You know, if you could have three different rake hells, types that's the the uh, uh the depraved rakel thank you very much <laughs> yeah the depraved rakel <laughs> sir depraved rakel to you yeah i mean you could have a bunch of different people and and the illustration wise aside from cover which is uh, uh my friend maddie huffman picture uh she, Ma- maddie is both the model and did the uh the photo uh, retouching and editing work on that as taken by her uh, her partner daniel schwenker aside from the cover all of the art in there is is uh public domain paintings, photographs, and sketches and cartoons and so forth from the Victorian period. The illustration there is from an early edition of The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the illustration of the rake hell there. And for the rake hell template, you could use that as, you know, Mr. Hyde is a rake hell, just with unusually high strength. You could also use the same thing for Dorian Gray. You could use that that same template for, you know, a bunch of 
drunken assholes you meet on the street who are just a little too rich for the police to want to bother with them. One of the glorious things about the Storyteller Vault is you get to write whatever the heck you want. The downside is if any work is being done, it's going to be by you. How do you feel as someone who's written both Onyx Path, Page You by the Word or whatever, and a set word count and, and here's your outline, and doing the Storyteller Vault stuff? How are you finding the storyteller vault in terms of something that uh, it tickles your creative interest and ability to add to to the world of mage mage made easy has paid me better than any mage book i've done except for mage 20 itself thank you everybody who's bought that (laughs) link in the show notes (laughs) yes i appreciate that thank you because it's a because it's a gold seller that one pays me pretty well uh fallen companions it made up its its costs eventually but it took a little while because both of those books have legs they provide a bit of income for me every month. Skindles and Fisticuffs, I hope folks like it. I hope that one has legs as well. I'm not going to be doing any large books. Fallen Companions was definitely an aberration. Uh, that book is... A chunk. That, yeah, that, that's... <laughs> That, that book's, a, if, if I recall off the, correctly off the top of my head, that's about 65,000 words. I'm not going to do another storyteller book of that length because that was a, an immense amount of work. And also, I, I invested a fair amount of money in, in the art as well as doing a bunch of the art myself. AI, which I am not going to use again. We figure while we're talking about this, I might as well mention, because I got ended up getting into arguments with a few people over the use of the AI work in Fallen Companions. That was a one-time only situation. Actually, the reason that I used it was less because of the cost of providing that much artwork, although I could never have commissioned that that much artwork. I'd be in debt for the rest of my life if I'd hired people for all those pieces, but mostly because of the way that it looked. I had originally contracted with Maddie and Daniel to have some photo manipulation pieces that they did in that book, and then Maddie had started messing around with Midjourney when it first came out. And it had this this whole fucked up surreal nightmare fuel thing, which was a look that I had wanted in uh, the Book of the Fallen. Samaria had done some photo manipulation that just had that kind of that nightmare fuel look that I wanted. And he, he you know he did the full pages in Book of the Fallen. The majority of the artwork in Book of the Fallen though looked more conventional than that. And when Maddie was messing around with Midjourney, I was like, that's it. Let's instead of the art that I was originally contracted with you folks to do, you know, to to do or to license really. They they hadn't done them for me. But let's go with Midjourney stuff that you did instead. And because uh Maddie and uh and my friend Ace were professional artists who were using Midjourney as a toolkit, I'm like, oh, let me mess around with this. Neat. Okay abstract nightmare fuel it is and we did that in uh, fallen companions and then this happened before the whole all your artwork are belong to us crap deviant art and art art station uh, art station and stuff yeah. when they changed their terms ai very quickly went from some from a neat tool to a, an unethical tool of exploitation at which point, Sandy and I, who had both been kind of having fun with Midjourney up to that point, both canceled our subscriptions and fucked us. We're not using it again. And besides that, that look only worked for that book. It wouldn't have worked. And Midjourney yeah. got better, so it doesn't and do Mid-Journey it in the better. same way. In the well, same yeah. way that like uh, pixel art, to me, only looks good if it is being generated by like a Windows 3.1 machine and like dithering yeah. is being used. It's kind of like the golden age of glitch art when JPEG <laughs> compression was odd and yeah. you would periodically get that offbeat masterpiece because your dial-up modem missed a, flipped a bit somewhere and now mm-hmm. we kind of have to go back and artificially add it like when digital fo- photographers add film grain back into a photo where it's like, ah, it's just not, not, not quite there. But yeah it, yeah, it certainly had that aesthetic and, and Samuel Araya, whew, um, if, anyone, yeah. if anyone has a spare copy of his version of the king in yellow i got some cheddar coming your way for that one i love sam's stuff he's great to work with too the the tldr on what satiris is saying regarding deviant art um deviant art one came up with its own ai image generation tool called dream up additionally they added an artist opt-out for inclusion in third-party ai data sets and it was checked by default so 
it was very easy to accidentally give away your rights, whether or not that would have stood up in court if someone turns changes the terms of service without telling you. Still, I think the technical term for that is not cool. Right. But that is my understanding of the uh, the deviant art snafu, to put it lightly. Other ones have just kind of initiated suit against any number of the large model uh, firms for for scraping their collection without getting uh, licenses to it. Uh, Adobe is currently working on one. I'm kind of curious to see how that ultimately turns out because oh, yeah. Adobe does Ooh, have literally nasty. tens of millions of licensed images that they own. So, yeah. <laughs> so I can't really stop them. As a creator, it's just so frustrating that greedy people have to take anything that that initially starts out as something neat and they have to exploit the shit out of the people who create it in order to just make a little extra money seem almost by design sometimes it is by design to fuck over the creators themselves in the process it's just so aggravating and unnecessary how do you like the creative side of it do you enjoy being able to kind of Write whatever you want without worrying about an outline or uh Yeah, I love it. I am done with wholesale creating new intellectual properties that I won't own. I'm kind of enjoying being able to add little, as I say in, you know, scandals and fisticuffs, adornments to stuff I've already created. But it's it's a shame because back when the Storytellers Vault first started and they said, hey, we, we're interested in doing, you know, some print on demand books. Maybe we're interested in giving the the, the creators an, an actual investment, long-term investment in creating new stuff. If they had kept it that way, there's a lot of stuff that I that I had on my drawing board. I'd love to do a book about this. I'd love to do a book about this. But the way that the terms have keep being changed and the fuckery either from, you know, not necessarily even World of Darkness rights holders, but the fuckery with I, that IP holders continue to deal out. I no longer trust IP holders to deal fairly with creative talent, so I'm not interested in creating new intellectual properties for anybody except myself because I'm so tired of being screwed out of the rights. Do you have any intentions on doing any further Storyteller Vault supplements for Major? I have some ideas. A lot of it depends on how well these books sell or how well they continue to sell. So I said, Mage Made Easy, I'm very, very glad with the way, I'm very happy with the reception that that has gotten. I've got ideas for more books along those lines. Given the way that the business owners keep changing terms, I'm very leery of creating anything new at this point, unless I have clear ownership of it from the beginning, because there's just so much of Dread Pirate Robertson being done with IP stuff. Good night, sleep tight, most likely kill you in the morning. Or, you know, better yet, Darth Vadering. I've altered the the deal, pray I don't alter it further. There's just been so much of that that at this point I no longer trust. I can't say I don't trust clients because obviously I still continue to do work, but I hold my best ideas for myself now. I, I've spent enough time in the word mines and seen enough of my stuff turned into or my work or my friend's work turned into, you know, gold for somebody else when we got a few pennies a word for, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30 years ago that I'm saving my best ideas for myself. I won't be putting them out under mage. And to pivot to the Patreon plug, if we're interested in seeing those ideas before they're out in the world, where can we do that, Satoros? At, at my Patreon, at my Patreon, and you see the things that I'm creating uh, for you know for myself, the things that I own the rights to, and the the various different things I'm working on. Patreon.com forward slash Phil Bricado. That is Patreon.com forward slash Phil Bricado. You uh, cross section of uh, what Satoros is reading, uh, little bits, uh, uh, some projects that don't go anywhere, which is still interesting. The mistakes beginning writers make, I feel, is not mm -hmm. recognizing that not every word goes into a final product or even comes close to it. Some of it is what Merlin Mann referred to as existential push-ups. It is just working <laughs> the muscle that will eventually produce the word that you need when you need it. It is like complaining that the home run you hit during practice does not count towards the game. Yes, that ball being hit out of the park didn't increase your score, but it certainly puts you in a better place too. So even all of these ideas just kind of keep the entire creative apparatus up and running. And if you are curious, you get to see a peek into that and you get to see that Zetaros, just like everyone else, has a questionable first draft or an idea that doesn't go anywhere or the precursor of what's going to be an absolute banger. Um, <laughs> so if you'd like to do that... Yeah. Patreon.com forward slash Phil Bricado. Uh, Satoros, thank you, thank you uh, so much for joining us. If we're interested in knowing what you're up to otherwise, where can we do that? I am also on Mastodon. I do still have a Twitter 
count just simply because Twitter is too big for me not to. It's just in contact, I've got follow and followed by too many people to to ditch out no matter what you know, Musk muskrat does this week mostly on facebook i'm still active on the uh, the facebook page group and there's my own page and my fabricado satiris fabricado author page you can also follow me uh, on amazon i have an uh, amazon author page thank you so much for joining yeah thank you terry this has been Mates the Podcast, where we like our community content like we like our premium energy drinks on a regular interval, but not quite daily, and with periodic sales on new flavors. This episode is made possible by the oracles of the lesser-known martial arts, including Sean Gallagher, Oracle of Gouging, which was banned in West Virginia in 1752, Ben Benjelo, Oracle of Okichita, which includes weapons like the Gunstock War Club and the Long Knife, Buck Gregory, Oracle of Kimo Mutai, a Filipino street fighting technique that started with just learning a lot of anatomy, Christopher Phillips, Oracle of Khan de Combat which became a sport in 1970. Guy Stewart, Oracle of Metarecht, which is Irish stick fighting. Josh Hillerup, Oracle of Bokator, which means pounding a lion in Cambodian and is over 1,700 years old. Pukaji, Oracle of Lurdrit, the martial art used by the Royal Thai Army's Pilus Guard. Jay Widener, Oracle of Clary Piyatu, Northern style, of course, which is over 3,000 years old. Eat it, Bokator. Mikhail, Oracle of Baycom, which focuses on blitz attacks with hidden weapons. And the crew of Erebus, Oracle of Abir, which will purportedly train you to become a biblical warrior. That's a thing. I've confirmed none of these and found a list of them online. Also thanks to Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad of the Blue, Archmaster Bubba the Pale One, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsick, Archmaster Jason Vines, Archmaster Morgan Aron, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, Alex, Alexia, Andrews S, Anon Baderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Chris Blake, Sinchotis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fryer Rock, George Lara, Henry Kraft, Eobol, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jake Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F, John Magnuson, Julian Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Le- Leroy Bryce, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Poyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanoff, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, and William Martin. Our EP shout out this week is to Starfish, who is getting Starfish facts, or more accurately, Sea Star facts. All Starfish are members of the class Asteroidae, which makes them all technically asteroids. There are almost 2,000 named species that live from the tropics to the polar regions, from the intertidal zone to the depths of over 20,000 feet. Most, but not all, have five arms, making them pentaradial, pentaradially symmetric, and others can have up to 40 symmetrical limbs, which is known as a lot for an animal. Starfish have two stomachs, a pyloric stomach, which can produce digestive enzymes, and a cardiac stomach, which can often be aversed or ejected out of the body to start digesting prey externally, letting them eat things much larger than their otherwise tiny mouths could manage. Starfish have no known presence in the beast courts, and no known kinfolk. Thank goodness. Starfish, thank you for your support. Rather listen on YouTube? Search Mates the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at matesthepodcast at gmail.com or at matesthepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash matesthepodcast. Mates the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at matesthepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform you're choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to Mates the Podcast for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye. <laughs>